Oh, what a privilege it is for us to be together once again this morning to gather as God's people and to open His Word together. Would you bow with me for a word of prayer as we ask God to honor our time? Father, we thank You again for this opportunity to once again gather as Your people and to open Your Word, to study it, to know what You have for us, to hear Your Word to be changed by it. We believe that Your Spirit is among us, in us who believe, and we know that He will help us to understand. And so we trust that, and we ask Your blessing upon our time for Your glory. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, let's take our Bibles and return in them to our study of Romans chapter 12. We're focusing our attention this morning on Romans chapter 12 and verses 3 through 8. 3 through 8. And I want to just read these verses for us as we begin to just really start to unpack what is here for us over the next couple weeks. The Apostle Paul says, For through the grace given to me, I say to every man among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we, who are many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. And since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let each exercise them accordingly, if prophecy according to the proportion of his faith, if service in his serving, or he who teaches in his teaching. Or he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, and he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Now I want us to stop right there and begin to consider what this passage is teaching to us as being a wise reminder really for us as to who we are to be as Christians in the church. We're talking about Christian conduct. We have spent months after month in the first 11 chapters of Romans, and we have come to chapter 12, and we spent several weeks in just the first two verses dealing with the idea and the the transition that Paul makes in reference to Christian conduct, how we are to live out all that we understand about ourselves and about God from verse chapters 1 through 11. As Christians, how are we to live? Christian conduct is our series. And now we are getting into that place of how we live as Christians, specifically in the church. You remember that the Apostle Paul has taken us on a grand journey, if you will, through the very mountainous peaks, the high mountains, if you will, of all the theological truths concerning the gospel. In chapters 1 through chapter 11, he's been proclaiming this, this monumental reality that God has brought about eternal salvation for all who will believe upon His righteous Son, Jesus Christ. He has told us that because of sin, because of the utter depravity of mankind, 
The flood of God's wrath has been and is being revealed from heaven against all people. Chapter 1, verse 18 and following. That God is a wrathful God. That God is going to carry out and is carrying out His wrath upon sin. And it will culminate in the ending where by God, where all who do not believe upon Jesus Christ will spend an eternity in hell under the wrath of God. No one is exempt. Why? Because all people are sinners. That is why people sin. People don't sin and thereby become sinners. People are sinners and thereby they sin. You and I are all like that. And the Bible tells us, Paul said in Romans chapter 3, the wages of sin is death. And so people both physically die and they also are spiritually dead before God. And so unless God does something, unless God condescends to us, to us the sinner, to us who are rebellious against God, unless God extends His mercy, unless God grants an undeserved gift to be given to us, then no one would ever be saved. None of us could ever save ourselves. None of us could ever appease the wrath of God in any satisfactory kind of way. And unless God does something for us, none of us will ever be saved. And so we were reminded by the Apostle Paul in the first 11 chapters that God did just that. We were reminded that justification being declared by God as innocent being declared by God as innocent, that that only comes through faith. Faith being a complete entrustment of oneself to God, to Jesus Christ. By means of the righteousness of Jesus Christ, we find faith, We find righteousness in God. The righteous Son of God, and it's through Him alone that all who believe are introduced into this, as Paul called it, a grace in which we stand. We stand in grace. The wrath of God being satisfied because the righteous died in the place of the unrighteous. The godly, Jesus Christ, died in the place of the ungodly, as Romans chapter 5 says. And therefore, as one who believes in Christ, we are saved from the wrath to come. This is how Paul said it in chapter 5. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exult in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations. Knowing that tribulations bring about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope. And hope does not disappoint. Why? Because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one would hardly die for a righteous man. Though even perhaps for a good man, someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates His own love toward us. In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This is the reality. So that now as a believer, 
I am now a slave of a new master. I'm a slave of one who is new. No longer a slave of sin, the taskmaster of my life as it was before Jesus Christ, but now I'm a slave of righteousness. Now I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. And so I think it's clear to all of us, as we have studied through Romans, this great epistle, that the Christian is a person who has been totally changed. A person is someone who has been taken from death to life. They are totally changed. And because of that, sin no longer is to rule over them in practice. Romans chapter 6, because we are under grace, because we live by grace, sin is no longer to reign over us. We are no longer a slave to sin. And so by the time you get to Romans chapter 12, we are now learning how this new life is to be lived. How you and I are to interact. And the place that Paul starts in how this new life is to be lived, the place that Paul starts is in the church. In the church. Christian to Christian. From verse 3 to the end of really chapter 12, you can divide this entire section up into two, in two sections. Verses 3 to 8 is the first section, and verses 9 to 21 is the second section. Verses 3 to 8, we're getting a picture of Christians, both men and women, Christians, people who believe in Jesus Christ, how we are to be exercising ourselves and exercising our giftedness within the church. Now, you may be asking yourself, why does Paul start there? Why does Paul start there? I mean, doesn't it seem to be that there would be a greater emphasis on how we live as Christians with those who don't know Jesus Christ? Why would Paul start here? Because, beloved, Christians, by their very new nature, are people who come together. Think about that. Christians... By their very nature now, because they're Christians, they're new, they are people, by their very new nature, they are people who come together. In fact, the Bible calls us the church. The church. We come together because we are Christian. We come together because of our newness. And we are Christians because we have been born again. In other words, we don't come together and thereby we become Christian. And if there's a gathering of people who come together and it's called, quote unquote, a church, thereby that's a Christian church. No, Christians come together and we are Christian because we are born again. And we are Christian because all that Paul has told us in verses chapter 1 through chapter 11 is true of us. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, and now we have been made alive because a godly, the godly has died for the ungodly. And we, by faith, entrusted ourselves to that reality. And therefore, the Bible, the first place you see people referred to as Christians is in the church. In the church. The church that began in Acts chapter 2. That doesn't mean that there were not believers before that. 
Certainly the Bible clearly declares that there was. The Old Testament, Abraham believed God and it was accounted unto him as righteousness. But the first place people are identified as Christians are in the church. Therefore, when Paul begins to look at the details of Christian living, he begins in the church. You and I, those of us who name the name of Christ, how are we to function? How are we to function? Now, as we begin our time this morning, if you go away with nothing else this morning, if you didn't have a good night's sleep last night and my voice and the warmth of this room causes you to nod off in a few minutes, please go away with this. There's nothing more important. Here it is. There's nothing more important for your Christian growth and for the glory of God in your Christian growth than your functioning in the church. Let me say that again. So if you nod off, you got it. There's nothing more important for your growth. Think about that. You're a Christian. You want to grow in Christ. There's nothing more important for your Christian growth and for the glory of God through your Christian growth than your functioning in the church. Why do I say that? Simply because of this one reason. The church is the body of Christ. The church is the body of Christ. There is no other body of Christ. The church is the body of Christ. And in light of what Paul has already exhorted us about in verses 1 and 2... Right? Remember that? I urge you by the mercies of God to present your bodies a living, holy sacrifice acceptable to God. This is your spiritual service of worship. Remember that in verse 1? In light of verse 1 and verse 2, the body of Christ, the church, us gathered, is the place where the presenting of yourself to God as a holy, living sacrifice begins to be worked out in practice. This is where it begins. Right here, together. You and I, Christians, in the church, in the body of Christ. Let me say it another way. There is no way for a Christian to be exercising their God-given gift outside of the body of Christ. Let me say that again. There is no way for you as a Christian to be exercising your God-given gift outside the body of Christ. It's impossible. And the body, by the way, is manifest or is seen in and through Local entities, i.e. Fellowship Bible Church. We are a local church. In other words, God has brought each one of us as His children to this place. By His circumstantial orchestrating of life, by His sovereignty, by the way He has brought us, He has brought us together as His body and he has granted us his mercy and he has granted to us his grace so that we have believed upon his son and he has brought us into his kingdom 
In fact, Paul said to the Colossians, you have been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. You're gone from sinfulness into this righteous kingdom, the kingdom of his son. So we've been transferred into his kingdom and we have been placed by his sovereign choice and purpose into a local body of believers, which is known as the church of which Christ is the head. Now, I hope that you see the importance of that in your life. The church is not this building. The church is not some ethereal concept that's out here floating around in space. The church is us. The church is you and I, believers, right here, right now, together, the local body of Christ. And therefore, implicationally, it is not to be neglected. The church is not to be neglected. In other words, as Christians, we don't get to decide. God did not call us into His kingdom, out of the domain of darkness, into the domain of His dear Son. He did not give us the privilege of being able to arbitrarily decide in some way how we are going to interact with the body that He placed us in. We don't get to decide that. We don't get to determine that. In fact, the writer of Hebrews says that to do so is to forsake the body. In other words, to arbitrarily decide on your own, to think that you have control of how you are going to be used in the body, is to actually forsake the body. But pastor, I I don't know about that. I'm not sure you're right about that. All right, well, turn over to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and 25. I'll actually read from verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. That is, let's hold fast to Jesus Christ. That's our hope. He is our hope. He's the hope of glory. Let us hold fast to Him with faith. That's faith. Let us not waver in our faith, he's saying. For he who promised is faithful. In other words, God said it. God's going to do it. And let us consider then how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Okay, great. We're holding fast to Christ by faith. We, we want to we remain there. We don't want to waver in that. And so in, in that idea, in living in that place, how do we consider how to stimulate one another? Well, you can't stimulate one another if you're not together. Consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not what? Forsaking his own, forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but rather encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. That's like putting an exclamation point at the end of a sentence, as you see the day drawing near. In other words, it's that serious. God could come at any moment, it's that serious. It's as you see the reality of what's happening, that God could come. You, you, you're together. You're, you're wanting to stimulate. And so you make it your priority. This is the priority for the church. We know what a habit is. It's a regular practice. As is the habit of some, he says in verse 25. It's a regular practice. Some... Even in the beginning of the church, 
When the church began, some were deliberately just staying away. It had become their habit. It had become their regular practice. And the body is suffering. And let me just say, it's deadly serious for them. Not just for the body. The body gets sick, but it's deadly serious for those who are forsaking. You say, how serious? Well, I'm glad you asked. Notice what he says in verse 26. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain terrifying expectation of judgment, the consuming fury of fire, which will consume the adversaries. That sounds like, wait a minute, that sounds like language for somebody who's not saved. That sounds like, that sounds, that's very terrifying language. That sounds like somebody is, is, under the wrath of God, that somebody's going to have a reality of, of suffering in that kind of way. Judgment, the fury of fire which consumes. Yeah. Yeah. Because you go on continually forsaking the assembling of the body, you know what you're potentially showing yourself to not be? If you don't care about the church... That it's your habit to just arbitrarily and deliberately take yourself and do whatever you feel like. You may look yourself in the mirror and maybe you're one of those in Matthew chapter 7 where Jesus says to them, I never knew you. You say you knew me, but I never knew you. That's deadly serious, isn't it? It's deadly serious. In fact, the implication is that some of those who are in that habit are simply fooling themselves concerning their own salvation. So we need to think very differently than maybe we have thought about ourselves in the past in reference to the church. This is the body of Christ. This is the body of Christ of which God, by His sovereign choice and sovereign hand, has placed us in and He has gifted us for it, for the building up the body, for the common good of the whole. Now go back to Romans chapter 12, because this is what Paul is beginning to deal with. And there are two principles here that Paul gives us to help us live in this Christian realm that God desires. Now, what is the Christian realm that God desires us to live in? What is this the reality of our life supposed to be? This realm of our Christian life, what's it supposed to be? It's the realm of humility. It's the realm of humility. Very, very penetrating reality. God is conforming us into the likeness of His Son, and there was no more one person humble than Jesus Christ. We are being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ and there was no one more humble than Jesus Christ. You remember the incredible phraseology of the Apostle Paul as he writes in Philippians chapter 2. Sunday school, they've been studying this passage. I wasn't in Sunday school this morning. I walked in, somebody said, you should have been here. This place was heavy. I think the words where they said, Al teaches it, they said, Al was undone. Why? Because, because what's pressing upon 
out and what should be pressing upon us is this reality of who Jesus Christ is. Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. I mean, that juxtaposition is monumental, folks. This is the very attitude you're to have that was in God incarnate when He was here on the earth. This is how you're to live your Christian life. This is to be the realm in which you live. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Although He existed in the form of God, He didn't regard equality with God something to be held on to. He didn't regard His position as something that He needed to kind of promote Himself. Even though He had every right to do that. Rather, he emptied himself. What was that emptying? What did it look like? It looked like taking on. He took on the form of a bondservant. Set aside the exaltation of his rightly deity. Took on the form of a bondservant and was made in the likeness of men. He became like you and I. The righteous for the unrighteous. The godly for the ungodly. Have that attitude in you. Righteous for unrighteous. Godly for ungodly. That, that's, that's your attitude. That's your mindset. That's, that's how you think about yourself. That's the realm you're supposed to live in. Well, how humble was he? Well, being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Well, we're all going to die. Yeah, but Christ didn't deserve to die. And he went and died the worst of all deaths in the ancient world, death on a cross. This is God. Have this attitude in you. You think about your life. You think about your operation. You think about your interaction as a Christian. This is to be the realm that we are to live. This is where we are to be. This is the extent to which God is conforming us, as Paul says in Romans 12, by the renewing of our mind. As our mind is changed, as God is causing us by by the saturation of His Word, by the taking in and the eating of His Word into our heart, into our mind. Our mind is being changed. We're beginning to think like God thinks. We are being conformed to the image of Christ. We are being made, hopefully, by God, as we submit ourselves to it, we are being made humble people. As we think like Christ, we begin to live like Christ. As we have this attitude in us that was also in Christ, we begin to live like Christ. Now let me, let me give us a short definition of humility. Here's humility. I'm nothing. God and His desires are everything. That's it. I'm nothing. God and His desires are Whatever that may be, 
God and His desires, even if it's death, death to the point of a cross, God and His desires are everything. I'm nothing, He's everything. That's humility. Humility is not words spoken. It's not words that come out of your mouth. Oh, gee, look how humble I am. No, it's a life lived in a way that Christ lived. It's a life lived just as I defined it. I'm nothing. Jesus is everything. So how do we begin to get there? How do we begin to get there in our lives? And, and how does that show up in the church? How does that show up amongst us? The church, the body, the gathering, the assembly together. Well, back in Romans chapter 12, Paul gives us two principles that drive us in that direction of this actual Christ-like humility. Principle number one is the principle of grace. Grace. We're going to see that in verse 3. Principle number two is the principle of group. The principle of grace, number one. The second is the principle of the group. In other words, the whole does not exist for me. I exist for the whole. That's in verses four and five. And then in verses 6 through 8, Paul just illustrates that. So let's talk about this principle of grace this morning. We've already heard about the realm of humility. That's the realm that God would have us live. That have this attitude in you, which was also in Christ. This is this realm of humility that we are to live in. In fact, this realm of humility is inherent in the words of verse 1. Offer yourselves. Right? Have this attitude in you, Philippians 2, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, what did he do? Offered himself. Became a man. The Godhead, I can only imagine in my mind, sitting there in their perfect harmony and perfect unity and no need of anything else, develops this plan to, to have a saved people to glorify them forever and ever. And Christ says, I'll go. I'll go. Present yourselves. Present your bodies to God, Paul says, as a living and holy sacrifice. Present yourselves for His use. Present yourselves for His doing. The proud person, the person who's proud, will only present themselves if they are getting something out of it. If it's good for me, if it's going to give me accolades, if it's going to do something for me, if I get something from you. That's what pride does. That's what the proud person does. That's why they do it. If it benefits them personally, if they are seen by all the others as being the best, the highest, the pinnacle. That's not so with the humble. Remember the definition, I'm nothing. God and His desires are everything. I'm nothing. Why does humility seem so elusive then? Certainly elusive in the world as we would expect. 
The world says, look, you're out for yourself. Do your own thing. Run your own world. Listen, you've got to claw yourself to the top. That's how you're seen as somebody. But it also seems to be elusive in the church. How do we live humble lives? How do we begin to live a life whereby I, in practice, consider myself as nothing... And God and his desires are seen in my life as everything. How do I get there? How do I begin to live like that? Well, Paul tells us in this first principle, and he uses his own life as an example. Notice what he says and how he says it. Verse 3, For through the grace given to me, I say to every man among you. We can stop right there for a moment. Paul says, I say, that's, what, that's the main part of that, I say, that's the, that's the object and the verb of the sentence. I say to you, through, that's the prepositional phrase, through the grace given to me. Don't miss that. Don't miss that. Because that's the important statement, and especially as it relates to us, and especially as it relates to our gifts and our use in the church. It's important because Paul is doing two things in that statement. Paul is asserting that we listen to him. He is asserting his apostolic authority. Listen to me because I'm an apostle and you ought to be listening to what I have to say. And that part sounds very proud. Hey, look at me. Look who I am. I'm an apostle. You better hear it. But yet he's displaying at the same time humility when he says it. You say, how so? Well, notice Paul the apostle. That reality carries a great amount of authority in the church. I'm an apostle in the church, Paul says. He had every right, he had every duty to speak with authority in the church. But he's very careful. He's very careful to show in his wording and in his life that he clearly understands exactly where he received that position and authority. You hear what he says? For through the grace given to me. I say this to you. Through the grace given to me, I say this to you. See, he desperately wants us to hear what he's saying. The first readers, he desperately wanted them to hear his words. He desperately wanted them to understand exactly how they were going to live out verses 1 and 2. He wants us to understand exactly how we're going to live it out right now. He wants us to hear it and he wants us to embrace it because he's an apostle. Because this is God's Word. Because this is inscripturated. Because Paul was inspired by God, by the Holy Spirit, to write this to us. And he wants us to hear it. He wants us not to just be words. He wants us to carry all the authority and all the unction and all the reality of God Himself. He wants that to be there. But at the same time, and most importantly, He wants us to know that what is true in and of us is also binding upon him. He is what he is. 
because of grace. He is what he is because of grace. In other words, he's been given a unique gift to be used for the building up of the church. But he is just a Christian like everybody else. He's just a normal guy that God gave a gift. And that's how he sees himself. Now, I don't think we need to go into a lengthy discussion of what the essence of grace is. Right? Grace is undeserved favor. It's a kindness. It's a kindness from God. It's something that comes exclusively from the heart of God. It's not in response to anything we did. It's not in response to who we are. It's not because God saw us and said, Oh, hey, listen, there's somebody I could really use. Look at all the gifts he's got. Look at how popular he is. Look at, the, look at all the people that follow him on Twitter. I think I'll save him. Boy, this is going to be useful for my kingdom. No, God didn't do any of that. It's in spite of anything inherent in us. It's grace. Grace. It's completely undeserved. And so what Paul is saying that he's exercising a gift. He is exercising his apostleship. He's exercising its authority in the church simply because it's a gift of God's grace to him. And he's overwhelmed by it because you remember who Paul is? Paul's the guy who hated Christ. Paul's the guy who persecuted the Christian. Paul's the guy who was standing there at the edge of the hole that Stephen's thrown into, holding the, the, the jackets of the people who were killing Stephen after Stephen preaches. He's that guy. Paul hears and sees the reality of God's grace all over the place. Paul never got over the reality of that in his life. Is it any wonder that Paul could say right here in chapter 12, verse 1, I urge you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. Everything about Paul's life he saw is the mercy of God. It's just the grace of God that I am what I am. That's how we need to be, just like Paul. The fact that we are a Christian now at all is a grace of God. That blew Paul away. That can only be explained by the grace of God. He's graced with an apostleship. He's graced with not just salvation, but he's graced by God with the gift that God gave him to be used in the body of Christ. Why do you highlight this, Pastor? Because Paul always saw himself as a trophy of God's grace. That's how Paul saw himself. I'm just a trophy of the grace of God. I'm nobody. And that drove Paul to be humble. In fact, just listen to what Paul says in chapter 15 in the exercise of his gift. He says, but I have written, chapter 15, verse 15, but I have written very boldly to you at some points so as to remind you again, because of the grace that was given to me from God, the reason I said what I said, the reason I've written the way I've written, the reason I've exercised my gift the way I've exercised my gift is simply because I understand this is a grace of God. To be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, 
ministering as a priest the gospel of God, that my offering of the Gentiles might become acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Paul says, it's just grace. I am what I am because of grace. This is, this is in the mind of Paul in every place he wrote. Corinthians, in the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, according to the grace of God given to me as a wise master builder, I laid a foundation. Another is building upon it. Paul says it was grace. It was just the grace of God in my life that I, that I was able to do what I did. It was the grace of God in my life that I am what I am. Some of you say I'm after Apollos. Some are after Paul's bickeries going on in the church. Paul says, listen, we're all of Christ. It's a grace of God in us. And so he says, be careful. Be careful how you build. He's emphasizing that his gift of apostleship was a gift of grace, undeserved. And so the implication is that everyone else needs to operate theirs in that same understanding. You and I, each and every one of us as the body, must operate our gift with that same understanding. Do you see why it's impossible for you to operate your God-giftedness outside the body? You misunderstand and misunderstand what God has graced you with. This kind of principle is all over the place. Paul was so amazed that he was just an apostle. He fully realized it was just a gift of God. This is so important for us, beloved. So important to contemplate. So important for our usefulness in the church. Because as we think about how it is that we are to interact with brothers and sisters in Christ, we ought to have this on our mind. And yet far too often in evangelicalism, I see it through the landscape. I read about other churches. I read about problems. I see difficulties. And what you find in the church is not this attitude of humility, understanding that you are a trophy of grace. But what's happening in the church is a jockeying for prominence. A jockeying for position. This little edging out of other people here and there so that I'm seen. So that I'm the one. And what you find is a desire in the heart to be the one who gets the best. The one who is the greatest. The one who gets all the accolades. The one who wants to be the person who's seen by everybody else as the most and the best. And what you often find is like the Corinthian church infighting that takes place. In fighting that happens because someone gets eclipsed by the gifting of somebody else. Someone thinks there's something and somebody else comes along and outshines them. And so they get upset that they're not being seen so brightly anymore. And yet what we find here in Romans chapter 12 is there's no boasting here in the Apostle Paul. There's no boasting about his position At the forefront of the Apostle Paul's mind is the reality, is the understanding that he is what he is by the grace of God. He knows he's nothing. So it's a paradox, isn't it? I mean, think about it. It's a paradox that's really going on here. The exercising of giftedness. We all have it. We've all been given gifts. Some of us think we don't have any, but yet you haven't looked rightly. And partly you don't think you have one because you haven't been exercising. 
But we've all been, if we're saved, we've been given gifts for the growth of the body, Ephesians says, for the building up of the whole. We've all been gifted. We all must exercise that. And yet here it is, this paradox. The exercising of my giftedness in the realm of humility. I'm going to do what God's called me to do. I'm going to be humble. Know that I'm nothing. And God is everything. That's why Paul can say this, what he says in verse 3. For through the grace given to me, I say to every man, get this, among you. Every man among you. Do you notice no one is exempt from the principle? I say this through the grace of God to every man among you. That's not speaking of just the men in the group. That's every person. Nobody's exempt from this principle of grace. No Christian is exempt from living in the realm of humility. And the way to to get into that realm of humility, the way to live that way is to understand you're a trophy of grace. Nobody's exempt from that. This isn't only for the visibly gifted, those who stand up and teach. It's not for them. No, it's for all of us in the church. Every single one of us. No matter what your gifting is. No distinction here. Paul's not just simply saying this for himself. This is for everybody. And part of the reason for that is because sin and the exercise of sinful pride makes no distinctions. Every single one of us loves ourselves. And we love to be loved. We love to be loved more than the other person's loved. Doesn't matter who we are. We're all susceptible to elevating ourselves. And yet here we see that we're all in the same position. We're all in the same position. We're all trophies of grace. I used to play baseball when I was a kid, and there was a few times when I won a few trophies, and those trophies, the, more you, the higher the place you finish, you got a bigger trophy. I know that's kind of disguised today because everybody gets a trophy. Well, guess what? In God's church, we're all the same size trophy. We're all the same size. I don't care what you do in the church. You're just a trophy of grace. And you do what you do because of grace. So we have to learn this lesson. We have to learn this lesson. We have to think of the church as a living community of people of faith in Jesus Christ. That's what the church is. Church isn't just a gathering of people who talk about God things. No, we are believers. The church is a place for believers. doesn't mean people who are unbelievers can't come and say, hey, what are these people all about? And they hear the gospel, and maybe they, by God's grace, grants them mercy, and they see their sin, and they repent of their sin, and they believe upon Jesus Christ as their Savior, and they become part of the church. But the church... And the gifts in the church are for the building up of the saints for the work of the ministry. And each one of us has been gifted. And each one of us is to function in the total life of the church. That is simply just to say, brothers and sisters, I I call us that from time to time because guess what? Look around you. You're going to spend eternity with these people. If you don't like them now, why are you here? We're going to be together forever. 
Fortunately, we'll be perfect then. But there can be no loners in the church. There can be no loners in the church. There can be no idea where you can just come here and sit in the seats and do nothing in the body. God doesn't have spectators. This isn't a show. The idea that the function of the church is left to certain special people is a wrong idea. Clear that out of your mind. It's not left to a certain special people. It is left to God's people. That's why I've always said this is a we ministry, not a me ministry. This is an us ministry. It's applicable to all of us. It's not just for me, the preacher. It's not just for those who teach other classes. It's for everyone. Paul says, I say this to every man among you. We are what? We are not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. You know, I'm not a writer. I've never written a book. But if I was writing this, I would have just said, we're not to be prideful. But that gets confusing, doesn't it? Because what one person thinks is pride, somebody else doesn't think is pride. I love what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit just goes, okay, listen, I'm going to take it down to your basic language so you stop confusing yourself with what pride is. Pride is thinking more highly of yourself. You know what the word there is? Hyperthinking. Don't be a hyperthinker about yourself. Have this attitude in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Who should have thought hyperly about himself, could have thought hyperly about himself, and no one could have blamed him. But he did. Don't think hyperly about yourself. Don't think, listen, don't think you're somebody because you're nobody. Right? Humility. I'm nobody. God's everything. Don't think you're somebody. You're nobody. You're nobody. The more highly we consider ourselves, the less humble we are. And the less humble we are, the more hurtful we are to the body of Christ. The church. Randy and I were joking this week after I got back from our day away. And Randy said, how was your time away? I said, it was good. He said, was it restful? I said, yeah. He said, we had five or ten new visitors last week. I said, wow, that's awesome. And Randy and I like to kid each other, as you guys know. He said, yeah, you should stay away more often. I said, I'll see you in two weeks. (laughs) He said, what a servant attitude you have. And I said, anything I can do to help the church? (laughs) See, the more highly we consider ourselves, the less humble we are. We're nobody. The more we think that we are unnecessary in the church... The more, listen, the more we think we are unnecessary in the church, the less we desire to be with the church. And the less we desire to be with the church, the more the church is hurt. Doesn't matter what your gift is, you're necessary. Doesn't matter how visible you are, you're necessary. You have 
the reality of being used by God in the life of someone here in the church that you may not even know about. And that's why Paul says, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to think, but think so as to have sound judgment. Some of your texts might say, with sober judgment. I like that. With sober judgment. We know what that is, don't we? I mean, just isolate the word sober. You don't have to, to be a rocket scientist to figure out. It means to be in your right mind. Someone who's inebriated with alcohol is not in their right mind. They, they make all kinds of foolish judgments. They get behind the wheel of a car and drive. We see it all the time. And Paul's not referring to drunkenness here, but he's using that kind of picture. They're not in their right mind. When you think more highly of yourself than you ought to think, you're not in your right mind. Your mind needs to be renewed. It needs to be renewed with the thinking that God has. And the thinking that God has is the thinking of Jesus Christ. Have this attitude in you which is also in Christ. Offer yourselves because of the mercy of God. Because you are where you are by the grace of God, by the mercy of God. You are who you are by that. Then think like that and offer yourself to God to be used by God in the body. You're not unnecessary. You're necessary. Because we have often forgot who we are, we hurt the church. We're just like Paul. We're trophies of grace. Trophies of the undeserved favor of God. And we are what we are by the gifting of that same grace. When we think like that, then we begin to offer ourselves as those living sacrifices that which we are to be, where God is everything and we're nothing. It doesn't matter if somebody steps on your toes, you're nothing anyway. It doesn't matter if you're eclipsed, you're nothing anyway. It doesn't matter if ten new people show up when you're not here, you're nothing anyway. God is given to each one. No one's left out. Notice that at the end of the verse? God has allotted to each not talking about salvation there. He's talking about gifting. It's not simply a measure of faith. I think the reality is, although the definite article isn't there in the original language, I think it's the measure of faith. He's talking about giving you the gift. It's a gift which was given by means of faith. In other words, when you trusted God, you were gifted by God. Some have confused that statement. I think Paul's just simply talking about the gift given to you by faith. We'll discuss that a little more next time. But every one of us has some particular gift through the channel of faith. I think 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 4 says the same truth. It just uses different words. Here's what it says. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. I think that's the idea. In other words, God's the Spirit who gives the gifts. He's the, he's the God the Spirit. He's the Spirit. But there's a massive diversity of gifts given. Not all of us are the same. Not all of us have the same gifts. Praise God for that. So this principle ought to help us determine how we think about ourselves. This principle of grace. When we're puffed up in our thinking about ourselves, when we think we have to be the one who, who's in front or the one who excels or all this stuff, 
We have disputes. We have infighting when we think more highly of ourselves than we ought. And God is dishonored. Damages the body. Churches are ripped apart because of that. Paul says, don't have hyperthinking about yourself. He says, have this attitude in you, which is also in Christ, who, although he existed in the form of God, didn't regard equality with God thing to be held on to. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient. By becoming obedient to who? By becoming obedient to the Father, God the Father. To the point of death, even death on a cross. The writer of Hebrews says, For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. Peter says, For you've been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he didn't revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Jesus Christ, God incarnate, kept entrusting himself to the Father. So that even when he was being stepped on, even when he was being reviled against, even when he was being maligned, even when he was being nailed to the cross, he said nothing. So how are we to live? How do we exercise humility in this life with one another in the church? By first remembering that we are here by grace. And we've been given giftedness by grace. It's all of grace. Well, there's a second principle that's going to help us be humble. We'll get to that next time. Next time. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you again for this morning. Just this time to let your gracious hammer of love pound upon our hearts the hard sin sickness of our self-elevation and to put us in the place where we must be and where we belong. A realm of humility. We deserve nothing that we have. You have given us all that we have. It's all of grace. Undeserved. Our salvation is undeserved. Our gifting is undeserved. And all glory goes to you. So we thank you, Lord, for showing us this. Thank you for opening our eyes to this. May we not treat the church with pride. May we not stay away because of our own selfish desires. May we exercise humility serving the church because it's your body of which you are the head. So that you receive all the glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.